Imagine you were hosting a party. Um, yesterday I was at a 40th birthday party. I think, uh, well, the next time I come to host a party might be around that sort of time uh, for me. Uh, imagine you were throwing a party. Um, try and imagine that. Might scare you thinking about when the next one might be, but imagine it. Who would you invite? Who would be on your guest list? Friends? Family? Okay, not all of them. Some of your friends, some of your family, probably not Aunt Mildred after all. Some of your colleagues, your boss, Laura from accounts, but not the difficult ones. And maybe some of your neighbours, but probably not the ones who leave their rubbish out all week. Imagine you were throwing a party. Who would you invite? You'd want a good crowd, good times. Probably some good gifts wouldn't go amiss either. Well, today we are looking at a parable about a party, about the banquet that God throws. We're in a little series um, looking at Jesus' parables. Last week we looked at the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Today we're looking at the parable of the Great Banquet in Luke chapter 14. We've called this little series Tales of the Unexpected. Because Jesus' stories are so much more radical than we tend to realise. Jesus' kingdom is more radical than we realise. Being a disciple is more radical than we realise. And the good news of the Christian faith is more radical than we realise. So we want to look at these famous stories, these tales of unexpected surprise. Because we want to be shaken up to see the wonder of what God has for us. So today then, Jesus' parable of the great banquet, as it's come to be known. Now to see the surprise uh, of this story, uh, we're going to need to see it in its context. So you'll remember with me in this section of Luke's gospel, that from chapter 9, Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to the cross, and he's taken his disciples with him. Uh, He's training them, and he's training us what it means to follow Jesus, and what it means to be on mission with him. And as Jesus goes to Jerusalem, we see time and again that Jesus gets rejected. Jesus' invitation seems to be spurned. And in chapter 13, verse 23, someone even asks, look, Jesus, will those who are being saved be few? I mean, if the Pharisees and Herod and the great and the good of Jerusalem reject you, Jesus, well, I mean, really, who does that leave? And how does that leave the disciples feeling? How confident are they in following Jesus when the in crowd and the religious elite aren't exactly fans? Can they be confident that they're on the right track with Jesus? You might be a Christian today. You might be looking into Christian things. And if you are, that's great. And you might be thinking, as I look around in the world, the great and the good don't seem to be buying into the message of Jesus. You might then think, well, Jesus' kingdom isn't going to be up to much. What am I doing? Well, here is a story to confront those thoughts. (laughs) Here's Jesus, and he's at a party in Luke chapter 14 with some Pharisees. And they aren't buying Jesus. In fact, this party goes from bad to worse. It gets more awkward and awkward and awkward. 
But Jesus has got something massive he wants to show us. Jesus here at this banquet will demonstrate that his party will not be for few. Jesus' party actually is going to be huge. It's just the people you expect to be there won't be there. And others will be. God's party, friends, is going to be lavish. It is going to be generous. It's just that some are going to count themselves out. And so others must be counted in. That's what we're going to see this morning. As Jesus teaches us what it means to be on mission with him. So look, three things to see this morning. The first one is this. We see this morning in this passage that those who refuse Jesus do so because they're more interested in self-promotion. Verses 12 to 14. Those who refuse Jesus are more interested in self-promotion. Jesus is showing us here that the Pharisees, the religious elites, are only interested in what pays. They want human status, human honour, and they only care about their material ambition. So they're not interested in Jesus, because how does he help them with what they're after? Sure, Jesus is at the feast, but he's being watched. Well, it turns out that as Jesus is being watched by these Pharisees, Jesus has done a lot of watching too. He's noticed at this feast of the Pharisees, that they're fighting over the seats. The guests fighting. I'm sitting at high table. That seat isn't for you. It's for me. That's my chair. I'm sitting at high table. No, I am. No, I am. Here are these religious people. And they pretend to care about the Sabbath and about God. But actually, really, they only care about their own agenda, sitting in the right circle with the right people, with the right influence and the right potential for themselves. I wonder if you've ever been at a wedding um, and there's that queue, isn't there, to the, for the seating plan? And as you get there, you think, I can't see my name on the list. Maybe I haven't got a seat. And you start to think, well, where, where am I? I think I'm invited. Where do I sit? Who should I sit with? Should, maybe, well, maybe I should just go home. Well, you see, there's none of that with this religious elite. The answer is obvious. Find the best seat in the house and put yourself in it. And Jesus looks and sees the horror of it. Or or these Pharisees at this party who claim to be good with God, well, they're attempting to best their neighbour. And they ignore the host of the party altogether. They're just having a scrum. What if the host intervened? What if the host said, no, you can't sit in this seat? Imagine being at a wedding and picking your own seat, and the host comes and says, uh, no, not there. And the bride and the groom come and pick you up and walk you to the back of the room. How embarrassing would that be? And Jesus says to the Pharisees in the context here, how much worse would that be in an, on an eternal scale? God humbles those who exalt themselves. Try to promote yourself to God's banquet. You'll find yourself humbled without a seat. So Jesus has noticed a lot of self-promotion, a lot of fighting in this party. But it turns out it's not just the guests doing it. Look at, look at verse 12. See, I did get there in the end. Look at verse 12. He turns to the party host. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbours lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. See, at banquets, 
these Pharisees are doing, I think, probably what politicians, and sorry if you're a politician, by the way, here this morning, but what a lot of politicians, I think, do today. You, you host a big charity fundraiser and you invite all the dignitaries. And because all the dignitaries come to your fundraiser, it rather makes the host look rather good. And so the guests are fighting to do the most impressive charity bid, but also the host looks wonderful. And in those days, the guests would owe the host a favour because they'd been allowed to come to the party. When the party host invites the powerful and the influencers and the elites, they're not so much interested in God. They're interested in themselves. You see, the Pharisees might look like religious pros, religious benefactors, who are definitely in heaven's elite. But what but they're just the same as the guests fighting. The guests fighting ignore the host of the party. And when they host their party, they ignore the host of the heavenly banquet. Because they're just as selfish. They're just as in it for themselves, inviting who they want to make themselves look better. And Jesus says, look, the people who are going to be at God's banquet, they won't think human approval matters. They won't think they need to promote themselves. They won't care about inviting the top brass to their parties. They want to invite to their parties people the heavenly host would have at his parties. If you care about God, you want to honour him. You don't want people giving you honour. You want honour from him. If you really believe that was a heavenly host of a heavenly banquet, you wouldn't care about human beings owing you a favour and owing you status. It wouldn't matter if your guests could repay you at all. In fact, quite the opposite. You wouldn't be concerned with their praise because you want praise from God. You want to honour him with the guests at your party. And since God brings you his banquet free of charge with nothing to pay, you'd want to share the same lavish generosity in the parties that you'd host. Not guests with big pockets, but guests with empty pockets. So that we might get all the honour from God. We're to care little for human hosting tactics of self-promotion. We're to care for for honour from God who invites the spiritually poor to his banquet. That's what God is doing. That's what God's banquet is like. But those who refuse Jesus, refuse him, because they're more interested in self-promotion. They're fighting for seats. They're inviting people who help them. They want to be paid in the here and now, with honour and success and material ambition. And Jesus can't give it to them, (laughs) so they think. In fact, even now, Jesus appears to be doing things that are socially and materially destructive. Jesus says, invite the poor and the lame. And it's like, well, how's that going to help me? If I invite invite the spiritual misfits of our culture, I'm going to then be ignored by the religious elites. Who's going to have me at their party after I've had this group at my party? Forfeited any thought of status and success. But Jesus is saying here, let the systems of promoting yourself, let them go. And the Pharisees say they can't because we want our honour. We want our money. We want our success. With human parties, we get paid. But with with your invite, we've got to wait for a a heavenly honour. And we won't wait. We want to be paid now. Do you see what the disciples are supposed to learn here? People reject Jesus, and it's not about Jesus. It's not that Jesus or his kingdom is in some way inadequate. People's rejection of Jesus, in fact, often doesn't have much to do with Jesus at all. People reject Jesus more because of themselves than because of him. 
people reject Jesus because they're more interested in self-promotion and self-advancement now. So that shouldn't knock our confidence, should it? It's not about Jesus. It's about them. Point number one, people who refuse Jesus do so because they're more interested in self-promotion. Their seats, their guests, their honour. But point number two, those who refuse Jesus do so and make sham excuses. Those who refuse Jesus make sham excuses. We see that in verses 15 to 20. You can imagine this party's getting a bit awkward. I mean, Jesus has basically just told the host that he shouldn't have invited all these people. <laughs> pretty, pretty awkward. And someone shouts out to relieve the, the tension um, in verse 15. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Oh, oh, blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. And Jesus thinks, thank you for the segue. Let me, uh, let me tell you about God's banquet. Let me tell you more about those who refuse it. Those who refuse it do so because they're interested in self-promotion. And they do so making false and sham excuses. Look at verse 16. He said to them, he said, he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Now, it seems in those days that when you hosted a banquet, two invitations were made. The first invitation, save the date. But because they had no fridge freezers and whatnot, when you'd prepared the feast and gathered everything and it was ready, you couldn't sit around and wait for the official party. You had to, you had to tell people, come, come, it's ready. Come, come and sit down. One invitation, save the date. Another, come to table. Come and sit down. But it seems that in this kind of 10-day period or something, people somehow found reasons not to come to the party, having originally accepted the invitation. Look at verse 18. The guests make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife. And notice, by the way, he doesn't say, please have me excused, does he? He simply says, and therefore I cannot come. How rude is that? So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Now listen, considering that gap, right? We're talking about save the date and eat. Ten, ten days or something like that. These excuses are terrible, aren't they? Aren't they utterly hideous? One says he's bought a field. And now he's got to go and do a survey. I mean, think about it in our terms. If someone buys a house, they don't exchange contracts until they've already done a survey. You don't do your survey after, you do it first. This is absolute nonsense. A man would not buy a field and having not seen it. What rubbish. And notice the second one says, I bought five oxen or five yoke of oxen. A, a yoke of oxen is the equivalent of a tractor in those terms. Uh, now, people who know about these things tell me a tractor costs upwards of £60,000. So to buy five tractors in today's terms, somewhere upwards of £300,000. Are you telling me a guy has gone and bought, spent £300,000, and has never looked at the kit he's been buying in advance? It is a sham. It is utter nonsense. It is rubbish. Isn't it rubbish? It's rubbish. It's nonsense. And lastly, someone says, I've got married. And it's like, is, is that an excuse? 
Are you not bringing your, your wife? Are you telling me your, your spouse is, a, is an excuse using your spouse? I mean, that's awful, isn't it? And I mean, tell me about, you know, you hear about shotgun weddings. But I mean, 10 days, found a wife, married her. It's rubbish, isn't it? It's a total nonsense. You see, it seems in this passage that some refuse the feast because it doesn't pay in human terms. But others refuse simply because it doesn't suit them. It doesn't suit them anymore to come. They said, yeah, I'll come. But when it comes to it, they don't. It doesn't suit them anymore. They simply don't want to come. And so they make sham, empty excuses. Now, I actually think an illustration of this is found at the beginning of our Bible passage um, today. Come with me to where Graham read for us, to to verse 1. I think this proves to be a helpful illustration of what's going on here. It's the Sabbath when they're at this feast. And before they sit down to eat, or as they're sitting down to eat, a man with dropsy comes in. And uh, Jesus knows this is going to be a drama. Is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees remain silent. They excuse themselves from answering. Jesus heals the man and rebukes the, rebukes the Pharisees. Um, if it was your son who fell in a ditch on a Sabbath, you'd rescue them, wouldn't you? If you had an ox, there's, there's the ox again. If you had an ox that fell in a ditch, you would go and pull them out. The law allows for that in an emergency. But since this man doesn't serve your needs, since it's not in your interest, since it doesn't suit you, you don't want to see this man healed on the Sabbath. And there's silence, they can't answer doesn't suit them to have this man healed. It's not in their interest. It's pretty, pretty awful, isn't it? Just like those sham excuses. But there's irony here too, because dropsy was a condition uh, which had real, real symbolic punch to it. If you had dropsy, you had um, an issue with fluid retention. So your belly would swell with fluid you, you couldn't get rid of, and uh, your legs and your limbs and so on. And dropsy as a condition became symbolic of being a greedy person, of being a thirsty person. Because when you had dropsy, you'd be really thirsty. But the more you drank, the more fluid you retained, the more thirsty you got. This man has a condition of of unquenchable thirst. And it was symbolic in those times with greed. And the Pharisees won't let him be healed. It's like Jesus is saying, here I am and I can cure everything that blocks human life. I can cure dropsy and I can cure you of your unquenchable thirst for human approval and human success and material advancement. But they won't have it. They simply will not have this man healed. They will not be healed. They won't have their, 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 their thirst quenched from looking for status in the eyes of men and greed to looking to God. They simply won't have it. They refuse this man his healing, with no excuse whatsoever. Their excuses are a sham. Those who refuse Jesus do so without any real reason. Just doesn't suit them. Their excuses are a a sham. I don't believe because and outcome the reasons. And you've heard it, I'm sure. But the truth behind those reasons is often that people just don't want to trust Jesus. It doesn't suit them to believe. Now, how does that help us this morning as disciples of Christ? Well, I think it helps us because we're not going to be surprised. You've invited someone to Grace Church and it's come for the coffee break at 
And you're waiting and they're not there. And you're waiting and they're not there. And then the text message comes through, I'm not coming. Well, we're not surprised, are we? Because those who refuse Jesus will make sham excuses. They will do so for no real reason. You're meeting up for coffee with someone to talk about a question that they've had. You're really excited about it. And then at the last minute, sorry, not coming. And the excuse, you're looking at it going, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, what? That, you, that's, not, that's not an excuse. But you know exactly what's going on. People will make sham excuses. We aren't surprised. And so our confidence in Jesus actually isn't shaken. In fact, if anything, our confidence in Jesus is strengthened. Because here's Jesus telling a story about sham excuses, lame excuses. Is Jesus worried about it? No. He's happy to speak about it. People's sham excuses won't ruin his party. They will not ruin his party one bit. No, not at all. I mean, it's utterly achingly painful, isn't it, when you experience someone making a last-minute excuse to you. You're gutted, aren't you? The truth is, you're a bit cross often. And think of that on, on an eternal scale, throwing back the feast of God into the face of God for no good reason. It is horrendous, isn't it? But notice Jesus isn't phased. He isn't phased, so we shouldn't be either. You know, as the great and the good reject Jesus' offer, they are ushering the invitation out to others. When some don't receive the offer, what does Jesus say? Well, he says, well then, it must go to others then, mustn't it? Will those who are saved be few? Most certainly not. The Pharisees may not be coming, so others will be coming instead. So look, thirdly then, those who receive Jesus, those who receive Jesus must be compelled in. Those who receive Jesus must be compelled in. Look at verses 21 to 24. In Jesus' story, the excuses are shared with a party host. And listen to what he says to the servant in verse 21. Well then, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And we go, wow! God's kingdom is going to be full of the most surprising guests. Okay, Jesus got it. Yeah, surprising guests. But actually, Jesus' story doesn't finish there, does it? He's got more to say. There's been one round of invitation, another round of invitation, but still there seems to be space at the party. Either some are still not accepting his invitation, or there's just so much room. But otherwise, a third round of invitation needs to go out. And so the host speaks to his servant again, verse 23. Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. It's striking here, isn't it, that note of judgment, but yet opportunity. It's striking, isn't it, that here is an offer of free food, a free party. And yet still in the story, people are turning it down. If someone said to me, we're doing a, a birthday party, there'll be jelly and ice cream, a magician, your kids are invited, party, ba party bags, oh yeah, party bags, yeah. Maybe a glass of sherry for the adults. Quiet place to sit down as well. Bouncy castle. Oh, don't, don't worry, we don't, expect, we, don't, we don't want gifts. We don't expect gifts. And we don't expect you to throw a fancy party a few months down the line either. This party's totally free. If someone offered me that for my family and my kids, that's like, wow, that's gold dust. 
I'm coming. I'm coming. But here it seems even so some wouldn't come. See, when the servant comes to those on the spiritual margins, those in the margins think, why me? I have nothing the host could want. Why is he inviting me? I have nothing to give him now. I'll have nothing to give him in the future. I have nothing to offer. Oh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. He's not interested in me. I won't come. And the host says, go and compel them in. Don't hear it when folks say, why me? Compel them. Urge them. Argue them. Use every power at your disposal to persuade them in. Those who receive Christ must be compelled in. Go to them and say, oh, sure, this feast is costly. But it comes as a gift to you. There is nothing to pay, nothing to repay. No debt, no duty, just the joy of the feast and the pleasure of the host. I was talking to someone recently who um, had been on a bit of a journey of faith. And they'd seen God working in their life. And they said to me, I, you know, this is great. But the thing I don't understand is why, why has this happened to me? Why does God care about me? Surely he'd not be interested in me. I feel like I need a sign or something because I just can't see. What you see, here is the very signpost that person needs, isn't it? Why me? Because God is after the people who must be compelled in, who think they've got nothing to give. Not th- the, 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 the party isn't for those who think they can, oh yeah, pretty much my place is guaranteed. It's not for those people who think I'll come to the party if it suits me. God's party invitation is for those who would reject Jesus, not because the party's below them and it doesn't help them, but because they think the party is so far above them that they could never get there. If you're the kind of person this morning that is thinking God's invitation could never be for me, well, this speaks, doesn't it? And says to us, you who think you're in the hedges and the lanes, you think you're so spiritually poor you could never afford to come in, well, this passage says the banquet really is a gift. This host doesn't want repaying. He wants you there. God doesn't want the self-interested and the self-righteous. He wants those who would receive this gift with joy. People who would never come without being urgently compelled to come. That the price has been paid. It's free. No strings attached. And so, Christians, this morning, do you see, we ought to think about our mission, oughtn't we? Do we see our mission as compelling those who say, why me? Do we see our mission as speaking to those who would say, shh, can't be for me? Surely not. Do you see your mission as being sharing God's lavish generosity? The price has been paid. Come to the feast. Is that your mission message? Do you say the rejection of Jesus isn't a problem? Because it is propelling the mission to go to those God wants at his table. Maybe when someone rejects Jesus to you, you sort of wallow in disappointment. Well, Jesus says to us this morning, don't do that. Take the message out to others, to others and to others and to others and more and more and more. Jesus' kingdom will not be few. It will be a huge, huge, huge party. Not for the self-important, but for the humble, spiritual poor who must be compelled in, who must have their ears twisted. It really is free for you. It really is God's amazing grace. 
so that they'll come because they are on the guest list. He means for his party to be full. Do you see the Christian mission like that? As we close, I think we should also see some implications, not just for our Christian mission, but also some implications for us in our Christian lives and in our discipleship. Jesus critiques the Pharisees' table manners, doesn't he? The way they conduct their parties isn't the way God conducts his party. And the wonder of God's banquet, the wonder of God's party, should break into our parties and our gatherings. It should affect who we associate with and who we invite to our gatherings. This parable has some radical implications for us. We all have certain people we're drawn to, don't we? We all have certain types of people we feel we should get up close and social with. People we think we should be seen with. But notice, look here, if God's best gift, his invitation to his feast, comes and is given to anyone, whether male or female, whether slave or free, whether educated or not, whether wealthy or poor, able or disabled, well then our whole idea of worth and who we should be spending time with and who we should be investing in and who's valuable, all our notions of that are blown apart, thrown into total disarray. God's guest list should blow up our guest list, shouldn't it? The self-important, the self-interested, are going to face the judgment. They won't taste the banquet. Then we must ask, who must we be associating with? So ask yourself, in our culture, in our time, in our place, who do our neighbours and our colleagues think, who do we think are spiritually bankrupt? Who do the elites, who do the social bigwigs think will never be at God's party? Well, then those are the ones who should be in our phone books, right? And our WhatsApp groups. They need to be our Facebook friends. Now, that might be costly. Indeed, Jesus knows this is costly. If at work you ignore the seemingly powerful and spend time with people on the margins, if in the social circles you do the same, well, it'll cost you, won't it? It'll cost you great human status. The in-crowd won't be cheering for you. Your hopes of social advancement might evaporate. Your neighbours will think, who on earth are they inviting round now? I mean, there was that ragtag lot last time. Who's this now? What on earth is going on next door? But friends, we are to give up our concern for human hosts and human parties and a human payout. Because we want honour at the heavenly feast. We want our lives to resemble the banquet that is coming. And you tell me which one is worth, more worth having. See, if we care about God as host of his party, we want his guests and his honour, then we'll reflect that, won't we, in our lives. It's revolutionary, isn't it? God's great banquet is to be the feast of all feasts. It comes free to all paid by the blood of Jesus himself. So friends, as we go from here, let's engage in Jesus' mission. Let's engage in it with thoroughgoing confidence. Jesus may be rejected, but it's not about him. There may be false excuses, but it's not going to stop his party. His party invitations will go large. And it is free. And we must compel 
people in. And as we go on that mission, let us feast now like the feast that is coming with the guests of God's great banquet, who he died and rose to win. Shall we pray? Our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we give you great thanks for this story that Jesus told. We thank you for how it confronts us. We thank you for how it challenges us. Thank you for the wonderful picture of the heavenly banquet. We praise you that if we've trusted in you, we get to be part of it. We praise you that now, when people refuse Jesus, it needn't knock our confidence. In fact, it should excite us with who is next to share the gospel with. We pray that we might be thrilled to share our lives with all, even those this world would reject. Give us a freedom, give us a liberation to do just that, to feast like our great father. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.